Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, everyone. I'm Michael Powell. I'm Pro Vice Chancellor of Business at Griffith University. And uh, standing in here for uh, uh, Professor Andrew Neal, who sends his apologies, he's director of the Griffith Asia Institute, and quite appropriately, he's in Asia right now. Uh, I'd like to begin uh, this evening by offering my thanks on behalf of Griffith University to our partners for this event, AsiaLink and the Gallery of Modern Art, the Queensland Art Gallery here. I'd also like to acknowledge the support of our friends at the Australia-China Business Council, Queensland. I'd like to acknowledge a few people here with us tonight, uh, Shinya Mishida, who's Acting Consul General of uh, the Consul General of Japan, uh, Mr. Derek Brown, I think he's here, the State Director Queensland of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Mr. Peter Kerr, Executive Director of New South Wales for AsiaLink, Mr. Ruben Keown, Curator, Contemporary Asian Art, Gallery of Modern Art here at the Queensland Art Gallery, Mr. Russell Storer, Curatorial Manager, Asian and Pacific Art, Gallery of Modern Art, Queensland Art Gallery, and Ms. Michelle Robinson, Vice President of the A, the Business Australia China Business Council of Queensland. As I mentioned, an apology from Andrew O'Neill at Griffith Asia Institute and Mrs. Jenny McGregor, who's Chief Executive Officer of Asia Link. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we are gathered here today, and I pay my respects to the spirit of this land and the people who are the part, are part of the oldest surviving and continuous culture in the world. Colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, it's almost a truism today to say that China's rise is one of the most stunning features of our contemporary international system. Indeed, when we call the 21st century the Asian century, we frequently see China as leading it at the forefront of it. Here in Asia, as we are in Australia, China, China's rise across the economic, political and strategic spectrums is reshaping how we and how other regional states interact in new and important ways. For many states, managing China's rise is seen simultaneously as a challenge and as an opportunity. The scale and speed of China's rise is a great power, it eclipses other dynamic changes in the, in the international system that we've witnessed since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the transition of China from an undeveloped, underdeveloped country, I should say, to an economic superpower of the past 30 35 years has been truly breathtaking. A key element in what we might call the contemporary China narrative is that China's rise is relentless and it will continue to transform uh, international, the international economy and international relations. Yet there are telltale signs that this narrative may be framed and may not be quite as deterministic as we think. Recent indications are that China's economic power may be less or economic growth may be less impressive and rounded than is commonly assumed. China has, of course, overtaken the US in manufacturing output and energy consumption, and its military spending has been growing at a very high rate, while, it, while the defence spending of Western countries like our own and others has been declining. But China's economic economy remains fragile, and the difference between rich and poor remains uh, a large gap. The economy's growth appears to be slowing, which will place further pressure on elites in Beijing who are aware that resentment among China's have-nots has the potential to evolve into a concerted challenge to the party, the Communist Party's legitimacy and authority. This has significant implications for policymakers around the world 
and the implications are not just economic. Powerful economic growth has been central to the Chinese Communist Party's claims to legitimacy and evidence that the CCP may not be delivering could pose serious challenges to stability inside China. One might argue that a stable China is a prerequisite for stability in Asia, and many would argue for the world. Thus the double-barreled question posed by tonight's presenter is China's rise inevitable? What might go wrong to, to stop that? It has enormous, enormous resonance, not just for us, but for China watchers rather, but for all of us, for anyone concerned with the future stability of Asia. I might say that there was no one better qualified than our speaker tonight to answer these incredibly difficult questions, and no one more, more ably suited to explain the inherent complexities of China's rise and what might go wrong. Martin Jacques' magisterial and far-sighted book, When China Rules the World, provide, which was first published in 2009, the more recent edition out, provides compelling evidence that there are other questions that we need to examine than just assume a deterministic uh, uh, change. Martin's core thesis in the book is that China may indeed rule the world, but that its ascent will do more than merely transform us economically, it will also transform us culturally as we, as we witness the growing global phenomenon of Chinese civilization eclipsing Western traditions. In short, the 21st century will witness increasing signification that will significantly reduce the influence of the West. Let me tell you a little bit about Martin before I formally invite him to speak to us this evening. Martin Jacques is the author of the global bestseller, When China Rules the World, The End of the Western World and the Birth of a New Global Order, which has been translated into 15 languages. His TED talk on how to understand China has had over 1.2 million views. He is a senior visiting research fellow at IDEAS, a centre for diplomacy and grand strategy at the London School of Economics, and a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He is also a fellow at the Transatlantic Academy, Washington, D.C. Martin has previously been a visiting professor at Renmin University in Beijing, the International Centre for China, uh, Chinese Studies in Nagoya, and uh, in at uh, University in Kyoto. He was a senior visiting research fellow at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. He was also formerly, formerly the editor of the renowned London-based based monthly Marxism Today until its closure in 1991 and was co-finder of the think tank Demos. He has been a columnist for many newspapers, made many television programs and is a former deputy editor of The Independent. He took his doctorate uh, from, at King's College in Cambridge. Ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Martin to speak to us. Thank you very much for those uh, generous words, Michael, and uh, good evening. Well, is China's rise inevitable? Of course it's not inevitable. Um, nothing is inevitable. Um, will it continue to have a powerful growth rate? Well, yes, probably, but it's not inevitable. So uh, it's very important to remember that the extraordinary developments in China since 1978, and before that since 1949, because that laid some of the basis for what's happened since 1978, were not sort of the result of natural forces, but they were also uh, the result of human intervention and decision-making 
and policy framework which were able to liberate the extraordinary potential that clearly China has. Now, I start by just saying this, um, that in the West, the predominant reaction to China's rise since 1978 has always been scepticism. Um, a belief that, uh, uh, well, in the early, on, early period, I remember, you know, the figures are exaggerated, you can't trust the statistics. Uh, these arguments have largely fallen by the wayside now, but you've not been to China to see that the obviously are true. Um, and, uh, uh, well, okay, it's, yeah, but they've got this problem, or they've got that problem, social stability, you know, they've got to create 20 million jobs a year, how are they going to uh, create all those jobs for the migrant workers, uh, and so on, shifting from the countryside. This has been uh, generally a, a, a persistent and dominant strain of scepticism in uh, Western discourse um, about uh, China. And a, a sense of surprise that China has had this Michael said, extraordinary growth rate over the last three decades. But maybe we shouldn't think like that. Maybe we're looking at it in the wrong way. And maybe actually the last 30 years are not exceptional, really, in the broader sweep of Chinese history. Maybe what's exceptional is the period between the 1840s and the British uh, instigated opium wars with China when China suffered a serious defeat, the loss of Hong Kong and so on, and finally 1949 with the Chinese Revolution. Maybe that was the exceptional period. That was when China became the basket case. Look at these statistics here. You see where it says China. 1820. In 1820 it accounted for 33% of global GDP. One third of global GDP. And then you had this, you know, what was it, China, absolutely disastrous period, 1870, 17.1, eventually in 1950, at 4.6%. Calamitous period in Chinese history. But if you go back before 1820, um, uh, over, you know, success, a series of dynasties, the Tang dynasty, uh, the Song dynasty, uh, the early Ming dynasty, China was generally one of the most prosperous countries in the world. One of the most invented uh, uh, countries in the world. The Song Dynasty, the two Songs, the Northern Song and the Southern Song, in the uh, 11th and 12th centuries, probably created most of the inventions which were subsequently to be in a tweaked and modified form to power the European industrial revolutions several centuries later. So the surprise is, I think, not really the last 30 years. The surprise is why China had this catastrophic period uh, in its history. And I think one of the reasons why there's this energy, this extraordinary commitment, the great skill that China showed during this period, the level of statecraft it's, it, it's demonstrated, is because these are the tap roots. These tap roots are in Chinese history. And anyone who knows the Chinese know that they're a very entrepreneurial people. They're naturally entrepreneurial. They're naturally orientated to markets. Adam Smith said in the late 18th century, Europe's market is nothing like China's. China's is a far, more, far larger and far more developed market. So I think that instead of 
are always bordering on the negative, or always looking at the negative in relationship to China. We should take the broad historical view and understand it within that sort of perspective. Now that's not to say that China doesn't face some very difficult problems. Well, of course, you know, we've got to remember that the biggest problems were actually, uh, some of the biggest problems have been in the past, and they've negotiated that with extraordinary skill. But they're facing a new set of problems now, which is how to shift the growth model of Chinese development away from one which is uh, essentially um, about shifting ab about uh, shifting people from the countryside into the cities. It's about uh, labour-intensive industry. It's about manufacturing, um, and it's about exports. And that's really been the motif of Chinese development since 1978. And now because of the growing sophistication of the Chinese economy, and particularly in its more advanced areas, like in the Yangtze Delta and the Guangdong province and so on, it now needs to concentrate uh, on uh, shifting to a more consumption-led, efficiency of capital, value-added model. And this will be critical. And clearly, it's, there's plenty of evidence now to suggest uh, uh, building up that the, the new Chinese leadership is going to focus on this problem. Because, as you may know, there's been an argument in the ruling circles in China for a while now that they needed a lower growth rate to concentrate on structural readjustments. And uh, from the looks of it, this leadership seems to have decided with the new growth rate, 7 to 8%, uh, that that is now the priority, is to shift the structure of the economy. Now, how successful it will be, and so on, we'll see. Um, I'm sort of quietly confident, but you know things can certainly go wrong. There's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of uh, possibilities um, of it becoming more difficult than the growth rate lowering. But I, I would generally think that they can probably sustain a seven eight percent growth rate, barring the unpredictable. You know, unpredictable. 2008 Western financial crisis was an unpredictable for the Chinese because they lost, you know, half their markets suddenly uh, uh, collapsed for a period, i.e. North America uh, and Europe, and still are very deflated compared with what uh, they were um, before. So uh, I think on, I, I think that, that um, I mean, I, I would, I think that the chances of China carrying on growing reasonably rapidly, you know, 7 or 8% for a period, then it will be 5 to 6%. Then it will be less than that. That, that, that. that is to be anticipated because China has been a catch-up economy, but when you start catching up, you have to start, you know, dancing on the technology, dancing on the leading edge and investing in R&D and so on. So that inevitably brings down the growth rate. That's what happens to, the develop, to developed countries and parts of China will become uh, pretty... Um, pretty uh, developed. But I think that you've got to remember this, that if the Chinese economy is growing at 7 to 8% a year, then the impact of this globally is far greater now than it was in 1978 or 1980 when the Chinese economy was 1 20th of the size of the American economy. Today it's just over half the size of the American economy. So the Chinese economy growing at 7 to 8% a year is like the American economy growing at 4% a year, which it doesn't, of course. So, um, uh, and, and as China gets, you know, if, uh, assuming it sustains a 7 to 8% growth rate for the next few years, uh, and it will overtake the United States, that's almost, that's, I think that's a, a certainty, as, as far as anything's certain, um, in terms of GDP. 
um, then uh, it will still be growing quite rapidly. So uh, those are, are, are some by way of introduction about um, about China. I think there's a, the other thing is a government health warning about media and market uh, chit-chat uh, and noise about China, which is always concentrates on an incredibly short-term period. You know, oh, the growth rate is going down by 0.2% compared to what it was the previous quarter or something like this, you know. The trouble with this kind of mentality is actually it doesn't tell you anything. If you're, if you're trading in shares, it tells you something. But if you're trying to understand longer-term development, it tells you nothing. Because you're focusing on the wrong questions. You're not even asking the right questions. So I just would add that, you know, that word of warning. I mean, I, I do speak to um, asset management people and all that kind of thing. And I'm always, some of them, of course, some of them, but some of them are very bright. But there's some of them incredibly ignorant. Absolutely incredibly ignorant about these bigger questions. Because they don't think like that. Because their time perspective is, you know, it's a bit like the Scottish, you know. You say, what's the weather like? Ask me in 15 minutes. <laughs> now, uh, what I want to uh, do now is to talk a little bit. No, I don't, I don't want to do this now. I'm going to come back to this. Don't worry, we'll get this. Bad luck. Um, right. This, that, I just want to, to sort of tap into where China is now. Because with all the sort of noise that I was describing, there's a lack of clarity, I find, uh, amongst lots of people about where China's got to. Uh, it's very important to understand that since the financial crisis in the West, which is often called a global financial crisis, it was not a global financial crisis. It was not a global, it was a Western financial crisis. <laughs> Just like the Asian financial crisis was not a global financial crisis, it was an Asian financial crisis. Yeah, of course it has repercussions. Now, this is the situation of the Western economies. Uh, Australia's not on this because Australia did, didn't have a, the only Western country not to, well, with Canada to some extent and Norway, someone pointed out in an email to me that they forgot to mention Norway, um, uh, Australia didn't have a recession uh, after the um, uh, financial crisis. But basically that's kind of ground zero on the eve of the financial crisis and most Western countries now are still smaller than they were on the eve of the financial crisis, including my own country of course. And, um, and America now is just above, uh, above the line. Now, just bear in mind what's happened to China in that same period. That's why I say it's a Western financial crisis, not a global financial crisis. Excuse me, China's carried on growing very impressively uh, during uh, this uh, period. And one of the consequences of this has been a shift in the centre of gravity of economic power and strength from the United States to China. And it's accelerated that process. So when I wrote my book in 2000, when it was published in 2009, I reprinted what then was the, sort of the most commonly used um, projection for relative GDP sizes in 2025 and 2050, which was the Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs projected in, 20, uh, thousands, um, in the 2007 that it would be uh, 2027 when China overtook the United States. Now, uh, this is a, a chart of the, on the left hand, well, the red lines on the left hand side are the, where China's already overtaken the United States, and the blue lines and the purple lines are where China is still um, 
uh, way, a long way from uh, overtaking the United States. So the key, in, in relation to the point I've just made, the key point is that it will overtake now, according to this sort of fairly consensual figures, um, it will overtake the United States uh, in uh, 2018, which is not far. Five years, somewhere. It could be faster than that. I mean, you know, when, I, when, when my book was published, people said, they're putting up the tape, they're going to no, no. You know, the future's never as predicted. What no one ever said was, you've got it wrong, it's going to be much quicker than that. But I did have it wrong. So, um, anyway, so, the, 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 now, so we, we're, we're very close, to, we're very, very close now to China overtaking the United States. I mean, there are different ways of putting these figures. Some people, it depends how you measure it, by GDP equal exchange rates or uh, according to purchasing power parity, but basically you get the picture. This is sort of the picture. Now, the other thing, of course, that emerges from this is that China is becoming a big economic player in the world, even though it's still the only developing economy. Um, and I would argue that probably China is now an import, more important shape of the global economy, of globalization, than the United States. And of course, for a long time, the United States has been the most important. And this comes in a number of different forms. I mean, first of all, China has enormous trade footprint. Um, this one, of course, is close to your hearts in Australia, because uh, China, like Japan, like Korea and so on, is very poor in natural resources, and it has a huge thirst for natural resources because of its extraordinary economic growth, industrialization, urbanization, and so on. So that iron ore, there's your one at the top, really. Um, and you can see what proportion of global consumption China takes. It is huge. So it is already the second biggest importer in the world and will be the largest importer uh, in the world. And when it comes to trade, exports, then as you know, China is a very, very competitive country when it comes to exports. Now, there, there, there's lots of things that I'd say about this, but I'm not gonna, I don't want to sort of get too much into, into, into too much detail here. But if you go back 30 years or 20 years, or even 10 years actually, very, China was the biggest trading partner of hardly any countries in the world. I mean, 20 years ago, virtually none. Maybe one or two, three, four in East Asia, and that was it. Today, if you span the world, then China is the biggest trading partner of many countries. I mean, look, Brazil. I mean, historically, Brazil's biggest trading partner was, you know, the United States. Um, but now the United States, the, thing, the figure for the United States, 14%. This is to the down. I think the figure for the United States is 10%. Um, and, and then you can see this, it spans the world. I mean, obviously, it's most important in East Asia. Many African countries, of course. But also, look at all the Latin America, and there's lots, a few more that I could count here. And of course, you know, Australia uh, is very important here at the bottom. That's the proportion of Australian uh, trade that takes place uh, with uh, China. But it's not just on the trade, I mean, financially, you know, China, because China's been running strong current account surpluses and fiscal surplus and so on, um, this is one of the things that's made China so strong compared with other developing countries and relatively invulnerable to crises is because they are big savers on a number of different fronts, uh, a big surplus country, or have been a big surplus country on a number of different fronts. But in 2009 and 2010, 
These two banks, these two banks are really important. You probably, maybe some of you have never heard of them. The China Development Bank and the China Export Import Bank are like Rothschilds was to Europe in the late 18th, early 19th century. But these are to the global economy or to the developing economy, where you know 85% of the world's population lives. They lent more to the, the developing countries in 2009 and 2010 than the World Bank. Uh, and the World Bank was one of the two, well, it still remains, but is actually, in my view, declining in importance and will continue to decline in importance, one of the two great institutions of the post-war American order. And you can take the renminbi, you know, they've, they've started to internationalise the renminbi, it's not that important yet, but it's rising in importance, and it will be very important. And uh, something like 15%, these are figures a bit, uh, over the last year, I think it's gone up to about 15% of Chinese trades now paid for in the renminbi, including, you know, the new swap agreement you've got, they've got with Australia, which means that Instead of trading, instead of having both countries change into the dollar to conduct their trade, they can do a direct uh, trade between the renminbi and the dollar, which uh, and the uh, and the Australian dollar. And obviously, this makes total sense. Although I understand from very good sources that the Americans have lodged a strong complaint with the Australian government uh, when they did this. Uh, uh, well, this is what's going to happen. The dollar is going to lose business. I mean, you know, the dollar is a decline. You know, Historically, is a declining currency. Uh, it's been strong recently, but you know, uh, it's for relatively short-term reasons. So, so there we are, um, and that's where we are. Okay, that's sort of where we are now. So, the, all the stuff about um, you know China's difficulties should be seen in this slightly more uh, wider and more comprehensive uh, context. Now, let's push the boat a little bit further out and talk more into the future, which is 2030. And this, this is a return to these figures. These figures are by Hu Gong, who is a very good professor of economics and economic history at Tsinghua University, who's got a very good track record on this kind of stuff, historical and futuristic. And his projection is, uh, well, let's, you, you can see China's rising proportion of GDP, but let me add these two. He projects in 2030 that he's not alone. There are uh, plenty of other voices, uh, fairly authoritative people who project something like this. That in 2030, China will account for uh, a third of global GDP. In other words, back to 1820, if you like. Uh, and, uh, and if you look at America, I mean, I think it's not just the China figure is stunning, but so is the American figure, down to 15 around 15%, and Europe to 13%. So in other words, China will be twice China's economy in 2030, which is only what, 17 years off or something like that, which is not that long, uh, will be, the American economy will be half the size of the Chinese, Chinese economy. And, Europe, and the EU will be um, uh, 13%, 2% less than the United States. So I, I just put this in this form, just to explain this point. Concentrate, these are two ways of measuring GDP. Just concentrate it on, as it were, the upper balls. Um, and uh, you can see the red, the red, the red uh, ball is China, and the silvery, grey silvery one is the United States. And that gives you uh, a little sort of gentle historical picture of a very rapid uh, historical uh, change. Um, or look at, look at this another way. 
you know, which is, this is, you know, we're looking at parallel trends really. One is about the rise of China, the other is the rise of the developing world. And uh, in, 19, in the mid-1970s, the developed world, the North, accounted for two-thirds of global, global GDP. And the uh, developing world, one-third. And uh, the projections in 2030 be exactly the opposite uh, in a very short historical period. Uh, and I, I, I have to say, you know, this seems to me an extraordinarily good development because 85% of the world lived, live in the, north, in the south and only 15% live in the north and yet the north has run the world for the last 200 years. So actually we're looking at the biggest act in my view of democratisation the world has ever seen. Uh, because if you don't have any economic power, you don't have any say in anything, basically. That's the way things work. So this is, seems to me, you know, if, if, uh, of course it means we're going to be much less important than we have been. Uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Um, you know, but it's, it, it's, it, from a humanitarian perspective, it seems to me very good. And so, just to sum, summarise this, a proportion of global GDP for Huangong are other 2%, Japan 3%, Russia 3%. Brazil, 5%, uh, other, Indonesia, Vietnam, etc., 6%, uh, EU, 13 US, 15 India, haven't talked about it, 19%, and China, 34%. Um, this would be a profoundly different world. A profoundly different world in two senses. First of all, um, this extraordinary shift in the centre of uh, economic gravity from, uh, from north to south, uh, but above all, I think, uh, from the United States and the developed world uh, to China. And, uh, and every country in the world, every continent can feel it, is discussing it. You know, of course, the impact is different in different places, so the Australian impact is different from the British impact. But we're talking about it in Britain. I mean, in Australia, I'll come back to this, it is actually, I think, more dramatic because of your uh, growing trade relationship with uh, China. But there's something else which we've really got to think about, um, and I'm going to talk about this, this is what I'm going to talk about next. The, the, second, the second aspect of how this world is going to be so different is to understand what... China is, um, that China is not a Western country. It's never been a Western country. It never will be a Western country. See, the modern world since the British Industrial Revolution has been dominated by Western countries, with the exception for a period of Japan being a serious player. But Japan, Japanese don't play hard on this now, but Japan never became a Western-style country. It had Western-style elements, but it remained extremely, and to this day, it's extremely distinctive. And China is uh, likewise extremely distinctive, but on a much larger scale, because it's ten times the population uh, of Japan. So, uh, there's an idea in the West very strong idea, which I think has affected and influenced and shaped each and every one of us, including certainly myself. I don't think anyone can stand out beside this, because it has been so powerful in our way of thinking. And that is 
that the process of modernization is essentially the process of westernization. And that at the end of the day, we're all going to end up Western, like Western-style societies. We're all on the same escalator, it's just that we're at different steps on the escalator. Now, I think this is fundamentally wrong. The process of modernization and modernity is shaped not simply by competition, technology and markets, it's also shaped by history and culture. And China's civilizational coordinates, historical coordinates, are profoundly different from those of the West. So while China is learning a lot from the West, absolutely no question, the period since 1978 has been a period of huge learning on the part of the Chinese. It won't end up like a Western-style society. It'll end up having learned a lot from the West, having Western elements, in that sense being hybrid, but still being a very distinctive modernity, which will not look the same as ours, but will be certainly recognisable in certain respects, of course, uh, that influence. Now, what I want to say here is, I want to challenge the way we think about China and say, look, in the following profound senses, China is so different from us and will remain very different from us. And the four things I want to challenge are, first of all, the idea of the nation-state. Secondly, the idea that we're all bent on ending up in very individualistic societies, which is a very common uh, position uh, held in the, uh, in, in the West. Um, thirdly, well, thirdly about uh, the nature of ethnicity, or the way ethnicity works in large, large countries. Um, fourthly, about leg legitimacy of government. In, in my view, that's the, the most heartfelt position in the West, and therefore the one that leads to an easy dismissal of China and the legitimacy of government. And I think it is, in many, in many senses, very flawed. And finally, the whole notion of what great being a great power means and how China, I think, will not conform in the same way to that convention or in the Western manner to that convention. Now, let me start at the beginning. The most important point of all is this. China has been a nation-state for only 100 years. Or about a bit more than 100 years, but not much more than 100 years. Now, anyone who knows anything about China knows that China's a hell of a lot older than 100 years. I mean, modern China as a polity has existed since the victory of the Qin Dynasty in 211 BC. That is over 2,000 years ago. Uh, those were the frontiers, roughly, the crude map of the boundaries of the Qin at the time of its victory, and that's the Han still over 2,000 years ago. And extraordinarily, the lower, the lower upper line is the Chinese border today. And the point is that for 2,000 years, China was not a nation state. China was a civilization, or as I would like to call it, a civilization state. And what has shaped the Chinese sense of who they are, of what they understand China to be, of their consciousness, is not a function of the last hundred years. It's not a function of being a nation state. It's a function of being a civilization. So the things that shape the Chinese sense of who they are are Confucian values, 
very unusual conception of the state and its relationship, as you'll see, uh, with uh, society, very distinctive conception uh, of the family, uh, uh, customs like ancestral worship, uh, social relations like Wanshi, uh, ideographic language, common characters, but many different dialects spoken, uh, Chinese food. I mean, these are the things which define for the Chinese what it means to be Chinese. Now, this is so different from the Western tradition. I like to think of it like this, that China is a country, country constituted on the basis of civilization, whereas Western countries overwhelmingly are countries constituted on the basis of nation. Now, the implications of this are very profound. We never discuss them in the West because we don't even think in these terms. For us, nation-states have been an assumption for a very, very long time uh, since the Westphalian Agreement, if not before that. But for many parts of the world, this is not true, by the way. I mean, you know, when I was in India uh, last uh, Ju uh, year, last July, doing a series of weeks, I mean, China and India are very different. But when I talked about India, uh, China as a civilization state, it meant a lot to them. And if you're from Iran, or if you're from Turkey, and other countries, they don't fit in really to this uh, way of, this, this history. Uh, and so I think in a hundred years' time, the world will look profoundly different to the present nation-state uh, system. But this is a complex question, speculative question. The point is now, China is primarily a civilization state, not a nation-state, and it's defined by three things. One, longevity. Two, an unusual coincidence for a long historical period between civilization and politic or political boundaries. And thirdly, the sheer scale of China. So one of the characteristics of China as a civilization state is, contrary to what we probably assume about China, is a lot of decentralization. That the rich of Beijing is limited. The provinces have great powers. Many provinces have more power, provincial governments have more power than probably the great majority of nation states in the world. And, um, and th therefore, the way in which China's run has had to allow for this diversity because it's on such a huge, a huge scale. So when Deng Xiaoping uh, was considering the question of the um, handover of Hong Kong and what the Ch Chinese constitutional offer would be, if you remember, he said, one country, two systems. Now, you know, I mean, I'm sure in Britain, I didn't understand what the hell the Chinese were on about. One country, two systems, you know, what, what is that? Um, we, certainly it's not Western logic, because Western logic is more like Ger what Germany did, German unification. What happened? One nation, uh, one system. East Germany disappeared. But Hong Kong, uh, Chinese proposed something different from Hong Kong. And this was because actually China, for, you know, for a very long time, has essentially been one civilization, several systems. Because it's the only way that the country could be run. Now this is a very important point. If you don't really remember anything else than what I should say tonight, but I'm sure you will, because you're such a good audience. Um, <laughs> that you know, this idea of China as a civilization state, because it's the key to a number of doors of understanding China, like, for example, race, like, for example, uh, the state, the government, because that's the question I'll come to now. Second point, I've just mentioned race. Let me say something very quickly about it. 1.3 million people, 1.3 billion, billion people, it's slightly more than that. Queensland must have a population. <laughs> the, uh, 
Uh, uh, 1.3 billion people. Did you know that over 90% of the Chinese think of themselves as, as of one race? Bahan. That's so different from the other world's most populous countries, like India, the United States, Indonesia, Brazil, Russia. They all regard themselves to be, you know, much more diverse than that in varying degrees. Now, obviously, you can say, well, it's inevitable in reality that, of course, China, with this huge continent, continental size, comes from many different places. And you're right. But, you know, the, uh, the point is, the key point is, that the way the Chinese think of themselves today is that over 90% think of themselves as Han. Now, there's many different questions that we could explore in this but time for bits, but I just want to say this. That I think above all this explains why China still exists. You see, China clearly, if you look at its size, was in many senses an empire. Yeah? Um, and all the em other empires virtually have disappeared. I mean, the only obvious one remaining, I suppose, is sort of Siberian part of Russia. And the reason why China has survived, it seems to me, the most important single reason is probably this ethnic reason which is that it's the Han, the idea of the Han, the idea of belonging to the Han, has acted as the cement which has held China together. So after 1989, I remember many people saying, ah, China will go the same way as the Soviet Union, it will break up. It didn't, and it was a nonsense. The reason the Soviet Union broke up, one of the reasons the Soviet Union broke up, uh, was because only half the population was Russian. And that just wasn't true of, of, of the Chinese case. So that's the second point I want to make. So this is very unusual, very unusual. The, the process, the, you know, every country has its process of ethnic construction. You've got your, uh, your, uh, yours, and you've got your just to be reminded of this. Um, and, uh, and every country has its job, and this is China's specific process. It's the, Han the Hanization of China is the way in which the ethnic construction of China has taken place. For good and sometimes for evil, but that is the truth. Um, the third point I want to make is just about individualism. Now the assumption is, oh, you know, Chinese society will end up like Western societies, you know, the young people are becoming more individualistic, they're becoming more into consumer trends, they, um, they spend loads of, you know, they're, they're probably the most, one of the most connected nations in the world in terms of the internet and so on. Now, of course, it, what is absolutely true is that the young Chinese, the gulf between the young Chinese and the old Chinese, is probably greater than the gulf between generations anywhere else in the world because of this extraordinary supercharged rate of growth. So the experiences of different generations are hugely different. That doesn't mean they don't have anything in common. That doesn't mean that history gets abandoned. That doesn't mean that the present is only a function of the present. It's still a function of history, but the history is reworked, the traditions are reworked, the culture is reworked in this new modern context. It's a complex process of the interaction of modernity and uh, history. Now, uh, one of the things that's being reworked and will be reworked and will be pro still profoundly important is the family. The family is a far more important institution in Chinese society. It's not exclusive to China, it's true of many Asian countries, East, East Asia and, and South Asian societies. And other, uh, and other parts of the whole of Asia uh, as well. 
The family is an extremely important institution in China and will remain so. So, for example, as you probably are, most of you are familiar, the Chinese write their name differently to the Western tradition. They always put their surname first because the family name is the most important and the given name always comes second. Or when it comes to the question of marriage, and it's not an arranged marriage in Chinese tradition like it is in uh, uh, South Asian societies uh, frequently, but it, marriage is a union of families, not just a union of two individuals. That's, it's a very different attitude to the one that prevails in the West, and this is still true amongst young Chinese. That hasn't, that basically, there's shifts and so on, but basically that is still uh, the case. Or take parenting. The authority of parents in China is much greater than the authority of parents in the West. I, I'm a parent, my son is, I'm a single parent, my, my son is 14, and um, I try and make my authority. <laughs> but he's not here to contradict me, so I can say that. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, we have to negotiate our authority. Whereas in a Chinese family, Chinese parenting is much more, you know, much more black and white. And there's a much more ethical view of what is right and wrong. Um, and uh, I think, personally, there's a lot to be said for Chinese parenting. Um, but Ravi still doesn't agree with me, uh, when he doesn't want to agree with me. Um, so uh, it's very important to see, uh, I could go on about this, but uh, just to see this, this, this point. Fourth point uh, is, um, is about the state. Now, this is the most controversial area I'm going to touch on, I think, probably in the whole talk. Because last night when I gave a talk to the serried ranks of people in Sydney, um, I was told from the uh, Twitter uh, chat uh, that people absolutely bought my economic arguments, but were rather more sceptical, put it like that, of this argument. Well, I would expect them to be more sceptical because this is absolutely... <laughs> at the centre of Western sensibilities. So, uh, bear with me. The legitimacy. <coughs> see, you've missed all this, but you see, time forbids. There we are. You see, um, we think the legitimacy of government is a function of democracy, don't we? We think now, we didn't used to think it in such a total fashion, but we think that uh, if, you, if your government is not elected by, in a democratic way, whatever that exactly is, but in a democratic universal suffrage, multi-partisan and so on, then you don't live in uh, a democracy and the government does not enjoy legitimacy. Now, I don't think this theory works very well uh, just in the West, either. I mean, um, you know, the Italians have had more elections than I've had hot dinners. Um, and uh, what's the chronic problem of Italian governance? Uh, it is that the people do not believe in central government. Because the Risorgimento was only a half successful uh, historical project. So therefore they'll elect a clown like Berlusconi um, because half the people don't think they should be paying taxes anyway, if you like, crudely put. Now take China, which is much more important than Italy in this context. China, 
Of course, he doesn't relent. Look, these are figures from Tony Sachet. He's at the Kennedy School of Harvard, and he's done some polling of Chinese uh, over China in the four successive periods. And you'll see extraordinarily high rates of, um, of satisfaction with central government in particular. That's the blue line. Much if you go down, each, uh, the purple is local government, so less. But still, I mean, no Western government would enjoy those levels of satisfaction. I don't, I don't think so. Um, and if you look at the Pew Global Attitude Surveys, it's sort of, you get the same sorts of results, actually. Uh, uh, you know, are you satisfied with what is your view of the future? The Chinese record very, very high uh, things. So given that the reason cannot be democracy in our terms, because China is not democratic in our terms, how do we explain this? I think this is a serious question for us to think about. It's a serious challenge. Now, someone will probably say in the audience, as they did last night, they said, oh, well, you know, we, the, the way the Chinese keep power is military. This is complete garbage. This is real nonsense. Um, you know, I, I mean, I spend a lot of time in China, and you never see soldiers on, virtually never. Okay, if you go to Tibet and you go to Xinjiang, it's different. But in the great, where the vast majority of Chinese live, and Chinese, you know, you hardly see a policeman in Beijing. Unless you go to Tiananmen Square, it's calling business in the Tiananmen Square. But, but generally, you don't. So this is silly, 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 silly talk. Uh, we've got to be a bit, bit more analytical than that. Now, I think there are three reasons. First of all, um, the Chinese view of the state is very different from anything that we have, and this takes us back to the point I made earlier about the civilization state. The Chinese think that the role of government is as the embodiment, the expression, uh, the exemplar of Chinese civilization, the protector of Chinese civilization, the guardian of Chinese civilization. The ultimate responsibility is to hold the place together. Very difficult action. Extremely difficult to hold a country of 1.3 billion people of a continental size together when the centrifugal forces historically and now are so strong. This is a hard act. And any government that fails will be booted out and has been mooted out. So this seems to me to be... So, that, so there, the Chinese attitude towards governance is so different from ours because it's such a different country, because it's a civilization state and not a nation state. And unless we understand that, we can't really unlock the door to begin to understand what China is. Second point. China, the, the, the way the Chinese view government is different from us. We have an instrumentalist and utilitarian view in the West of what government is. We elect it according to whether we think it's going to do a good job and what we want out of it, and if it's successful, we might vote for it again, or if it's unsuccessful, we might boot it out. And that is, it's for us an external agent. Now the Chinese have a, it's constructed on a completely different basis. The Chinese, um, this really takes us back to Confucius. Confucius's argument is that the state, Chinese state was probably the earliest state in the world, a long history of statecraft. Confucius's argument was that the emperor should, the, the model of the emperor's relationship with, it, with his people should be the same as the role of the father in the family. Of course, it's a patriarchal tradition in that day. Um, and so 
The Chinese attitude to this day, and this is not just true of China, it's other true of other East Asian countries as well in varying degrees. The Chinese attitude towards government is a familiar attitude. So I remember someone interrupting me once, or meeting a Chinese person, currently was now, maybe even in London actually, and said, if you want to understand Chinese government, think of the Chinese parent. And I thought, yeah, cracking point. <laughs> cracking point, yes, very, very good point. And the, the thing is that, um, so, so, whereas we view the state as an externality in the West, they view it with an intimacy which is based on, with the state, the other most important institution in Chinese life, which is the family. So this is a really important point uh, to, um, uh, to grasp. And the third point, and I'll do this very quickly, the third point is that Chinese government uh, uh, is deeply preoccupied by competence. This is again a very old Chinese tradition. Confucian tradition takes you right back to the old Mandarin exams. You know, China was very advanced uh, because uh, it had, a, 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 especially special Mandarin exams based on the Chinese classics, which allowed commoners to gain entry and run the imperial bureaucracy. And very from a very early period, at least two thousand years ago. So in some senses earlier than that. And um, the Chinese ever since have had an idea, have maintained the view of the importance of the competence of state officials. Uh, and I would argue that actually the Chinese are more, the Chinese state is probably more competent uh, than any other state uh, in, uh, in, in the world, even though it's only a poor uh, developing uh, country. Um, anyway, so there are three thoughts for you. Um, to try, uh, that, that doesn't mean they don't overthrow government, by the way. It doesn't, China's had lots of revolutions. Uh, but then, once they've got booted out the last lot because they think they've failed, you know, they, they, they failed the mandate, they've lost the mandate of heaven, and it's time to rebel, the people rebel, um, then the new government, the new, that old government system is renewed, if you like, that old relationship. My last point here is about China as a great power. Will it be the United States? I think not. Will it be like Britain? I think not. I think it will be rather different. You know, we, 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 I think we, our fear of China as a great power is based on its size, the number of people. God, they're going to overwhelm this kind of argument. Uh, secondly, uh, communism, communist government, and that tradition, and what we associate um, uh, uh, with that. Maybe those are the two, two, two points. Now, um, actually, China, China and Russia are so different. You know, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party and the Soviet Communist Party were, so, are, are, were, were, and are so different institutions. But that's another argument altogether. Um, the point I want to make is this: it is true that the Western tradition and the Chinese tradition have something very important in common. They both have long thought of themselves as universalistic. In other words model for others. Okay? For the Western tradition, what did it mean for the Europeans? It means on the basis of their discoveries to basically annex most of, a large part of the world to civilise the uncivilised, to take to them our religion, our learning, our language, and civilise them. This was the European mantra. 
Now the Chinese also have a view that they were the highest form of society, the land under heaven, the middle kingdom. But for the Chinese, their universalism had exactly the opposite implication. The Chinese view was, why step outside paradise, if you like, the most developed civilization in the world, into varying, deepening, darkening shades of barbarity? Stay at home. You don't want to go out. So the emperor never gave any protection. As soon as people started leaving in the 12th century to Southeast Asia, the emperor said, you're gone. That's it. Compare that the attitude with the British or the French who take you around the British cities and show you the, the heroes of colonial uh, uh, occupation. Uh, uh, a totally different uh, attitude. Now, the thing is that, I mean, the, the, very interesting, you know, uh, the, we've got to finish the moment? Okay. Well, I'll finish by just uh, saying uh, one thing about Australia. And that is the... I would say, I've been now here three times in the last year, that the Australian debate on China is the most interesting debate of any Western country. And the reason I think it's the most interesting debate is because you, by force may hear, because of the importance of Chinese demand for your iron ore, uh, have got to think very, very uh, intensively about your, relation, about your geopolitical position and your relationship with China uh, and the United States. Um, and uh, at the moment, I think, well, the position is something like, and it's an interesting position you arrived at, which is China is your friend, good friend, not when it's put us under that, and America is your ally. And uh, I think that this is, this is, for a period, a sustainable position, probably, but in the longer run, maybe not so long, it's not a sustainable position. And it's not a sustainable position because, for example, if uh, tensions grow between China and the United States, which they probably will, I don't mean there's going to be a cold war, but they, they, then what is your attitude? Are you always going to silence security questions in the United States and have no, nothing to say to the Chinese except we agree with the Americans? Or a, now that, I think, will probably poison the relationship with China over time. So I think, actually, what's behest, what would be hest on Australia is to have a very nuanced position, which is absolutely to say part of Western lines, because I think that's what Australia is and has been, but be an independent voice on East Asia and Asia-Pacific matters within the context of the Western alliance. And uh, I think what Australia has to say is something, or should say, rather than has to say, should say is something like this, that we believe that China should be given, this is its neighbourhood, this is its region, it needs to be given space, it's got, every, it's got legitimate rights to space in this region, the Americans cannot insist on primacy in this region as they have historically, but they should share an equitable relationship with China in this region. Now this would be a very interesting position for Australia to develop, um, and I think it is, in the long run, probably the only sustainable position if, as I think will happen, Australia becomes more and more and more deeply involved, above all with China, but also with the region. You know, we're a long, long way from the late 18th century. Uh, Australia's future is going to be increasingly with Asia, and you can see from those figures in 2030, West is going to be of dwindling significance. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Martin. And uh, my uh, apologies for having to step in and stop that um, uh, very fascinating and, and quite emphatic um, presentation. But uh, this man does have to catch a plane, so um, we're quite aware of the time limits. I would like, though, to firstly to, to thank you, Martin, on behalf of the Gallery of Modern Art and the Queensland Art Gallery uh, for coming here today and uh, for um, giving such a fantastic summation, both of the issues that are in your book and I think some of the issues that are at play uh, in Australia. Um, if anybody hasn't read the, read the book, I do thoroughly recommend it. Um, it looks like quite a formidable time, but time, but uh, I actually found it quite a cracking read. Um, it's it's also something that's actually quite hot, hotly debated, which I think is a good thing because unfortunately we don't have time for questions. Um, but a lot of the issues that are that have been raised uh, in the book have been uh, obviously. Um, very actively covered within the within the popular media. Uh, I think even if you follow a, a Twitter stream from last night or uh, tonight's event, you'll see uh, a number of the issues kind of being bandied about. But uh, do please join with me in thanking uh, Martin Jones. And I'd like to uh, invite Mr. Peter Kerr, who's the Executive Director of New South Wales of AsiaLink, to deliver some remarks. Thanks uh, very much, uh, Ruben. I'll, I'll be speedy. It, uh, it's an absolute delight to listen to Martin, uh, and I listened to him at uh, UNSW last night, and um, I'm sorry I can't go down to Melbourne for tomorrow night. Shame on you. Uh, I know, I'm just not trying, am I? Um, so uh, I'd just like to say that uh, I'm, I'm Peter Kerr, I'm the Executive Director of AsiaLink in New South Wales. We're gradually spreading up from Melbourne, and we're making our presence known in, uh, in Brisbane and, and uh, through the Leaders Program now. But uh, AsiaLink's been working for more than 20 years to increase understanding of Asia and to promote friendships and networks between Australia and Asia. And we've been doing it through education and track to dialogue and the arts and uh, working with government and business. And uh, this is uh, why we're so keen to be involved with having Martin here because I think that for me, uh, one of the great things that Martin's done is to um, help to challenge us in about our view in the place of the world and to look at uh, our place in the world through different eyes. And that's, uh, for me, uh, part of what AsiaLink is all about. So um, we're uh, very, very proud to be associated with uh, Martin's visit. Thank you very much to uh, Michael Powell from Griffith University. Thanks very much to Reuben and the uh, Gallery of Modern Art. Um, I hope you all enjoyed tonight. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.